the American Battlefield Trust seeks to preserve our nation's hallowed battlegrounds and educate the public about what happened there and why it matters today. They permanently protect these battlefields for future generations as a lasting and tangible memorial to the brave soldiers who fought in the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Civil War. You can help save battlefield land today by visiting battlefields.org. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian, and I'm really happy to be giving you this podcast because I really think this is an awesome discussion between myself and Dr. Peter Carmichael of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. We talk about something that's very important to both of us, and that is how the history field, and especially the Civil War history field, has changed so much in the last 20 years because the different strata of the history field are starting to work together more. And we go over why we think that is, and we go over those different strata a little bit, uh, varying ways of getting into the history field and what our experiences are and what we think is going to happen in the future. This is a very important discussion. Uh, Dr. Carmichael has his life experiences, and I have some similar experiences, but I also come at this from a different angle as well in some cases. So it's a really great discussion, and I'm really looking forward to you hearing this. I really think it's going to open some eyes and also showcase the differences in historians um, and their experiences and how they can work together through all those different um, roads traveled to come up with some great programming. So, ladies and gentlemen, here's my discussion with Dr. Peter Carmichael, which we did live on a Facebook Live uh, last week. I wanted to give you the audio of this so you can listen to it in your car or, uh, you know, at work if you're still an essential employee and heading out. Uh, I really wanted to give you this so you had the audio version of it. So please enjoy this talk that I had with Dr. Peter Carmichael about public historians, academics, and the future of Civil War history. There we go. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this Zoom meeting, which is kind of like the Gary Owen, but in digital format. And, uh, and water instead of beer. Yeah, water instead of the stronger <laughs> stuff for Pete and, and myself, obviously. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, we, we've entitled this discussion tonight, Allies or Adversaries, College Professors, Public Historians, and the Future of Civil War History. The future of Civil War History has been a hot topic lately, and I think that it's great that uh, uh, Pete and I lend our voices into this because why not? <laughs> Hundreds of other people have, so let's let's talk about that. But again, I'm I'm really happy to be joined by by my good friend Dr. Peter Carmichael, uh, Civil War Institute at Gaysburg College. Pete, thanks so much for being here. And before you get started, buddy, I got to plug the book. <laughs> I got my copy of the book here. 
War for the Common Soldier. And that's the one that Pete signed for me. So Pete, good to see you, my friend. Yeah, thanks so much, John. It's good to be on with you. And, and I think this is a really great topic for us to share because we have unique experiences uh, in, in certain ways. And we also have worked together on a lot of things. So it's kind of like our paths have been really uh, going on different ways, but coming together at the end. So I think it's a really great topic. Yeah, and I think John, you and I share um, in a sense similar backgrounds. I mean, I got my start as a public historian. First job was at Appomattox Courthouse in 1985. I was the Union soldier, Corporal Bobby Fields. They still, in fact, interpret Bobby Fields to this day. Uh, I spent all my summers in college and grad school working in the Park Service. And then obviously I've gone on and finished my PhD and have spent now my time in the academy. So um, I've always had a close connection to the field of public or popular history. And uh, you can tell your Tell the audience a little bit about your background as well, because maybe they don't know you're about ready to join the dark side, <laughs> yes. right? This yes. fall, you'll be going off to get your PhD, but I'll let you tell folks about what your background's all about. Yeah, so similar, similar beginning in that I started off with, as a public historian not knowing it, in my case, because I was just a reenactor, and I was like, uh, I, I didn't see myself as a public historian, I saw myself as a reenactor, uh, but I... I started at the age of eight, really, in Civil War history because I grew up 25 miles from Gettysburg, and uh, uh, I used it as a way to kind of escape being in a broken home, and I just dove into books. I would lock myself in my room and dive into books, and um, about the age of 12 is when I started to reenact, and that led to a 25-year crusade of reenacting and laying out in the field on a wet blanket from time to time, and and really experiencing things, but I didn't actually go back to uh, earn a degree in college. I didn't graduate with my BA till I was 30. Uh, I had jobs in uh, paving roads and uh, working in, you know, digging ditches and working warehouses and all that stuff. And I still had the, the inner passion of, of history, uh, but I didn't know how to utilize it at the time. And it really took a while for me to really find myself and take a chance. So uh, it's for me, it's better late than never. And, uh, with, with going on to try to earn my PhD, um, you know, that's, that's kind of like a goal I set for myself just because I'm the first in my family to go to university. So I want to show that you can go from, you know, high school diploma to someday getting a PhD, even if your parents didn't do it. So that's really well, John, I think it's, you know, uh, wonderful that you're going to go on and start your doctoral work uh, this fall. And I, um, you can tell the folks a little bit later about where you're going, but you know, I, I think this is a, a nice transition to how the Academy views public history. And what I mean by that are historians who work at national parks, historic sites, uh, folks who do living history, uh, those who nine to five job is not being a historian, but they find the time to be able to publish and write their own books. You know, when I was just getting started in 1980s and 1990s, uh, there was a great divide between the academy and popular historians, and especially when it came to Civil War reenacting. Uh, that was very much looked down upon. And it was often seen when I started grad school, which was in the early 90s, that if you couldn't get a job at a college teaching as a professor, that being a public historian 
working at a museum, working at a battlefield site, doing living history. All those things were the things that one did if you couldn't be on the first string. And it was kind of seen as the backup. That was in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. But I'd say, you know, in the last really 12 to 15 years, what I've witnessed is a remarkable transformation. It's one in which I think that the academy has largely come to embrace public history. They've come to appreciate that a historian needs to write and to speak to general audiences. And that value, I think, translates to how we are as historians being trained. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm eager to, to hear from you when you're off in Canada this fall about what folks up there think about what a professional historian, what a public historian, what a popular historian, you know, how do they relate to each other? Uh, and I think we're at a very exciting time because this was set up as, you know, antagonists or allies. I'd say mostly allies. I've got some other things to say. I'll be, I'll, I'll end with this and John, you can give us some of your thoughts about this as well. Yeah, I, some, of, some of the resistance that I now find mm -hmm. is not from academics so much as it's from public historians. I often hear from public historians, well, you're not on the front lines. You don't work at the site. You don't know your stuff. And so I, I've seen an interesting switch. You know, Back mm -hmm. in the day, it was the academics that had questions about the legitimacy of public historians. Mm -hmm. Now things have switched a little bit. I've seen public historians who, not all, but some, who uh, they see battle lines where I don't think there really should be. Mm. So you've seen the pendulum swing the other direction now completely. Yeah, a little bit, I have. Yeah. I, I especially hear it when someone says, this is the, the great line you hear at Gettysburg all the time. That person really knows her stuff or his stuff. And what that often really translates to that somebody knows in excruciating detail something that happened within what a two or three hour time period on a little postage stamp of ground. I'm not diminishing the importance of that knowledge. What I raise questions about though is a historian not have a an important and valuable voice about Gettysburg if they don't know something in such incredible detail. My mm -hmm argument would be, absolutely not. We need people who can come to this battlefield and talk about Gettysburg or any historic site and be site specific, but at the same time, get some altitude and talk about ideas, raise bigger questions. I think that that's where the, the mix between academic history and public history, I think when that comes together, I think it can be done in a really powerful and meaningful way for our audiences. Mm -hmm. I think interpretation for me and maybe you at AppMax as well really influenced how I present in a classroom when I do help out in a classroom or I do a presentation for someone. I wouldn't be in the position I'm at unless I had gone through that and had learned to talk to people. Mm -hmm. And and I think maybe that's why some uh, see certain people in academia as being um, I don't want to use disingenuous, but disconnected because yeah. they've gone from an 18 year old to a 30 year old and they've just gone straight through. They haven't had quote real world experiences. And I think sometimes that can create some friction. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, no doubt. Uh, and let me I, I'll ask you, John, mm -hmm. about being 
a reenactor in, in doing living history. I'm going to play a little devil's advocate here. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm going to say what I often hear. I'm not saying I believe this. I'm saying this is what I hear. Mm -hmm. That when you do living history, that you're really not doing anything more than glorifying war. Mm. Explain to me, explain I, to the folks here, what does living history offer that I can't do in the, in the classroom? And, wow. and what can you offer that doesn't glorify war? That's, that's an amazing question because I've been, uh, people have told me that I'm glorifying war or I'm only studying military history because I like war. Uh, which is an art that's even going into uh, uh, academia. But for, for as far as reenacting is concerned, I have had such great experiences out there with, with people who want to dive deep into the primary sources and discuss really deep things that can connect with the visitor as far as how are you even going to eat out here? How are you going to get food? How do you get your pay at the end of the month? things that we can connect with that we don't often think about because too many people think it's just a bunch of people going out and shooting guns at one another when in actuality there are people who want to do something deeper than that and it and there's different strata in the hit in the uh, reenacting field as well some people just want to go out and as we would say burn powder and want to do that but some people love the interpretive model of being in the footsteps of these soldiers or or nurses or whoever it may be at the moment 155 years later, or they want to allow people to see that, uh, like the programming that we saw a couple of years ago at Gettysburg with the 147th New York, right? Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. that, that uh, Chris Gwynn and a few other people had set up, that level of interpretation is to me so much better than it was in the early 90s when I started. John, tell me how the, the things that soldiers carry, right? How do you then use that? How does that become an effective teaching tool? Because my job at Appomattox, when I was Bobby Fields, the chief historian said to me, you're not going to carry a gun. You're not going to carry a haversack. He said, those are props. Those are props. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. Material culture, the things they carry, how do you use that? How does that become an effective teaching tool? Well, a lot of people see it, um, I saw it as one of those traveling trunks like you can send to schools. I, I was a mobile traveling trunk and I was basically taking everything out of my pack and showcasing what they would have had on campaign and, and uh, stripping off my haversack with all the food and showing the food that they would have eaten. So it was basically, I took interpretation as each person out there is a walking museum in that way. They have their own stuff to bring to the table. Um, Certain people just saw it as this is all I need to get by for the weekend, and that's great. But I saw it as uh, when we would do a mock battle afterwards, I was walking through the crowds and I was putting stuff out and showing people what they had. So it became an immersive experience, not only for them, but for me, because I was learning how to work a crowd. And, I was, I, and that really came in handy. But I see that totally as like a traveling trunk, you know, thing like we see in public schools. Well, I know that at some point you'll be speaking to Jim Broomhall at Shepherd University, and he, among many others, Megan Kate Nelson, Brian Lusky, uh, Jason Phillips, uh, Joan Cashin, among scholars, uh, they have said Civil War historians have ignored the things they carry, what we call yeah. material culture. Yeah. But reenactors, people who've done living history, 
Hell, they've been talking about it for years, right? right. right. There's a great example of where those two worlds, I think, can come together mm-hmm. and come together in a way that will help people doing living history get beyond just saying, this is hardtack, this is salt pork, right. here's my cartridge box, right? Mm-hmm. There's those men during the war years assign deep meanings to those things. And like you said, to be able to recover that for the audiences, I think has incredible value. It's damn hard for me to do in the classroom, but I'm lucky here at Gettysburg that my classroom (laughs) is my battlefield. And uh, and this horrible thing that's happening to the world right now, that's keeping so many people kept up in their homes. Uh, I'm fortunate, I, I step outside of my house, I go a quarter of a mile and I'm right on Willoughby Run at McPherson's Wood. So I'm out there on the battlefield, this great classroom that Gettysburg College students have not only got to enjoy, but they get to work there every summer they do. So it's, it's a great teaching tool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'm gonna ask you, okay. what do you consider to be good interpretation on the battlefield? Uh, how, how, how can we again bring together the academic sort of perspective as well as public historians? What have you found out there that you think is, that really works? You know, I was uh, thinking about that for a long time because for years we grew up around uh, the the great tours that the National Park Service puts on with their ranger programs and such. But I was really excited to see the turnout we had last April with the Culps Hill Tour because you started to see the different blending of the strata going on in the history field where you have academics working alongside public historians to present something. And when we, when we were on that tour, you could see that even the crowd was different. Some people in the, you had different demographics, you had different uh, backgrounds. I really think that battlefield and any other historical site would, would get a lot from collaborative, collaborative efforts between public historians and academics in that way where a tour is given. And you can see things from the different strata of uh of the field you know there's different voices but telling the same story just in different ways because i've been on panels where i was the only uh i hate to use this term but independent historian and then someone else was a historian with the state of pennsylvania and someone else was with uh, a a museum and it was interesting to watch students who we were talking to would say well i don't um connect with this historian, but I connect with this historian. And I think that's the same thing when you go out and you do things with a public historian and an academic is where someone's going to understand the academic maybe a little bit better or understand the story a little bit differently than they would with a public historian. We're we're speaking in different voices, but we're saying the same story. Yes, and John, I might again split hairs with you a little bit about that. I think you you make a good point, especially the tour you're referring to, the one that we did uh, last April, I believe it was in April, right. uh, and we did with uh, Chris Gwynn at National Park, Jim Broomall at Shepherd. you were there, I was there as well. Mm-hmm. What I really liked is I thought that all those voices came together, the public historian voice, the academic voice, and what I mean by that, and this again I think is a bigger issue for our audiences to consider, mm-hmm. what constitutes a battlefield tour in which the audiences are engaged to think deeply about the site. Look, mm-hmm. I have dear friends in the Park Service. I, I wanna say again, I cut my teeth 
as a historian working in the Park Service. I have Park Service friends who feel like that the story should just be the story on the ground. It should just, just be of the troops themselves, of, of those troop movements. I find that story to be extremely narrow. I have over time seen a willingness now to contextualize that story. And that's what we did last April. We did, we did that last April when we looked at Spangler Spring. We talked about that as a story of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Then we went to the Spangler Meadow, compared the story of the spring to the recollection of a survivor of the 27th Indiana who damned the Confederate soldiers who shot down wounded comrades after the assault on July the 3rd. And then we finished up talking about the death of Charlie Futch and Jim Brumall gave an outstanding overview as to how Charlie Futch's brother, John, how he buried his brother in a way that was consistent with ideas about the good death and burial practices. It was very much a cultural angle. You know, I think that any historian who thinks that the public uh, cannot, not only is not receptive to that, but does not gain something meaningful from it, that all they want is bedtime stories, I think that vastly undersells mm -hmm. what the American public wants to do. Mm -hmm. And I'll end with this. I, again, have a very high regard for Chris Gwynn. Mm -hmm. His predecessor, Scott Hartwig as well. I mean, again, you start listing names and you forget people and that's a mistake, but I'll just simply say this. The interpretive markers that are gonna come to Gettysburg, and I think those markers will probably come in the next few years. Right. They were markers that for the first time are gonna help people understand the tactics of that battle within a broader context. Mm -hmm. You'll be able to go to the base of Cemetery Hill and understand and appreciate why mm -hmm. Richard Ewell was made into a scapegoat. It's very much a lost cause explanation for Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. and to think, to, to this very day, you can go there and still have really no sense of that broader context is truly unfortunate. Gwynn and Hennessy, Hennessy down in Fredericksburg, they've done it. Mm -hmm. Emmanuel Dabney down at Petersburg, they've tried to contextualize the crater. These are all positive trends. These are all trends to get people to think about these places in deep and meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll leave, I'll ask you with this question here, John, and that is, how do you talk about tactical history on the battlefield? How do you discuss tactics? What, what's part of that discussion for you? I think that uh, one of the things for me was I grew up as a young man wanting to know all the tactics and wanting to know the movements and wanting to understand it from a minute detail kind of thing. Uh, as I grew older, I wanted to get more of the cultural standpoint as a military historian, but I love to go out there with people. And uh, if I have a group of people, it's interesting to watch them try to understand numbers uh, because we're talking about thousands and thousands of people smashed into one little area. And uh, I always bring about when I'm talking about huge numbers let's say the, uh, the Army of the Potomac, and let's say 85,000 people. And I, I basically have to tell them it's like moving Beaver Stadium at Penn State at one time and, and trying to get them and figure out where's the water going to come from and, and all this. Because some people talk about Robert E. Lee and they're like, on the first day, why didn't he just turn around? And it's like, oh yeah, you can't do that. Right. So numbers really comes into 
a, a factor with it. Uh, tactics is it's kind of like we have uh, pop culture to help us with that because we have movies and we can say, well, if you've seen Gettysburg or you've even seen The Patriot, you understand shoulder to shoulder and all that. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah, um, so if you bring in the popular culture end of it, we can talk about tactics in that way. But you know, it, it's kind of a it's kind of a an interesting thing to fight with people to try and make them understand about. Because the first thing is, well, what, people will ask, well, why were they so stupid? Why would you line up and just go at them like that? And you have to go back into you know Napoleonic tactics and do all that with them. Um, but as a former reenactor. Uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit easier because you, I've lived it as far as like, I, I know what it's like not to be able to get a move right because I messed up or, you know, I, I understand the movements out there. And so maybe my background has allowed me to think that in a, in a weird way that everyone should know this because right. <laughs> I had to deal with it. Well, I, again, with your reenacting, you've helped people visualize that, right? You're able to paint a picture, which is again, the hallmark of being a good public historian. And what we really haven't talked about is so many people who publish books in our field, especially about Gettysburg, uh, they've done so without any professional training. And some people might ask, you know, can someone make a meaningful contribution to the field without going on and getting an advanced degree? And I would say, yes, that certainly is the case, but there is an important distinction to be made. And that is, as you well know, John, is that when you go on to get an advanced degree, you study something called historiography. It is how historians have talked to each other. Now, some people are dismissive of that. I think that's a mistake. Yeah. I think that understanding historiography, understanding how debates have evolved over time, allows one to really position your own interpretation, your own argument, your own findings within the body of someone else's work. And so I think that still remains to be a key difference. And I will have to say, I think professional training matters. I'm not suggesting that having a master's or PhD makes you a better historian, but it does make a difference. With that training, you're able and you see things in a different light. I'm not saying it's always a better light. But again, I think all that comes together. And I've seen that change and that shift at the Civil War Institute Conference. And so I'll get back to my point where I think I have found, or around times, I should say, I have encountered. I have encountered that resentment, uh, and I don't really know where it comes from, but it's a resentment toward the academy. And I'll give you a very specific example. I won't name the person, but a person, a historian who's published, wrote in a Facebook post about the Civil War Institute conference. He called it the academic snooze fest. I wanted to write and I didn't. I wanted to write, well, that academic snooze fest has more than 300 people in the audience and live C-SPAN. So that's a lot of people sleeping, I guess. Mm -hmm. But what this person doesn't know, and I think this is important for our audiences to realize, is that not just at my conference, but at conferences all around, those speakers, many of them who are at, at colleges, teaching as professors, they started off as I did. They worked in the Park Service. They're public historians. So the idea that any conference, including my own, is one that just touts academics is utter nonsense. Mm -hmm. And it's just not reflective again of where things have been. I think that you know what we too often see 
is that, and I blame Twitter on this, and I blame blogs on this, although I think they both do good things. And I think they are both avenues of public history. And I think they give people a stage who need a stage. But I will say that what Twitter and blogs, unfortunately too, is they create controversy where there's no controversy. You want to get hits, you want to get attention, and you have to be provocative. I don't think that's healthy for the field. I'm not saying the people who do that are not doing important things, but there is a dark side to that, and it's an unfortunate one. I think that's why I got some blowback when I first started my brand was just because I would get the mail saying you're ruining history and you're don't whatever it may be, but they went off of the name of the brand and they didn't actually look at what I'm trying to do. And they were jealous. I mean, they were jealous. You went out and you created something. And, and John, you have done so much, again, to make those connections, to be those links between academics, between my students. John has done wonderful things for my students. And so, yeah, a lot of this, I think, often, uh, unfortunately, uh, doesn't come from a very good place. But, but I want to affirm the fact that we are in a much better place than what we've ever been in terms of that collaborative spirit. And I can only say that every summer, Gettysburg College and the Pohanka Foundation places between 25 to 30 young people on the front lines of history. Mm -hmm. I mean, God, for those who want to lament that the younger generation doesn't care about the past, well, all they got to do is look at Gettysburg College and they'll see that beautiful marriage between academic history, public historians, park service, and folks like you. Uh, so I think, you know, we're all in this together. I think there's a lot to be hopeful about. I was really uh, honored that you let me go to the CWI conference last year and live stream interview because I, I figured, what the hell, it gives people uh, an ability to plug their books. It gives people an ability to, to let, let out what they're researching and, and to lend their voice and all that stuff. And I was so you know happy that you allowed me to come out and do that because uh, that hadn't been done on a grand scale yet. I think that's that a lot more people are going to be doing in the future, especially with what they're learning now during this crisis. Yes, they're learning right. a lot more about live streaming and they're learning mm -hmm. a lot more about that. And they're, they're mm -hmm. shaking off the rust and they're doing, doing that. But uh, that was a unique experience for me. And I, and I know that I received some positive feedback from that, from people who said, wow, we didn't realize this is a, a thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I said, well, as long as I'm not giving away what, people paid for to see as long as I'm off the side just interviewing kind of like uh like uh, Zach Galifianakis in between two, <laughs> two ferns yeah you need to do that I love that He's I want to do yeah I've said I want to do between two bookends I think that'd be great <laughs> uh, and and I thought that was a great way for for people to connect with an audience and you know as well as I do there are presenters at CWI just like everywhere else who won't do it because they're they're uncomfortable or whatever. And I totally get that. And I'm like, that's fine. I'm not going to force you to come on. Uh, but we're slowly starting to see the incremental uh, shift of people getting over that. And it, I think, and I've said before, and I said in a recent blog post, this pandemic that we're going through is causing people to come out of that shell and say, well, this is my way of connecting now. I'm on Zoom or I'm on Facebook Live. I have to be. Well, and John, what you've done so well, and I think this is the, the right word is conversation. John, you've always done a great job in facilitating conversations. And so when you've interviewed our speakers and when C-SPAN films our talks at, at CWI, people still come because what do they want above all else? They want a conversation. 
They want face-to-face -face interaction. And so you are absolutely right. This is gonna change the way in which we communicate the past. There's gonna be more Zooming, there's gonna be more live streaming, yeah. but I have no doubt face-to-face -face interaction will prevail. Civil War Roundtables. Hell, we are all the children of Civil War Roundtables. And I implore people, again, to stop being so dismissive and saying, rest in peace, Civil War Roundtables. No, they're foundational to what we've done. And, uh, and again, we've got to find ways to keep those lines of communication going on because conversation back and forth, what you've done so nicely is so important to the field. I know you said you wanted to take some questions. I don't know if we have any or even comments. I'm over here. Uh, some of you have been seeing that once in a while I've been peering over here. I'm actually looking at your uh, comments to see if there's any uh, any uh, thing that you want to ask or anything like that. That's why I've been looking over to the side here. I haven't been ignoring Pete. Just the good uh, stuff, John. We just yeah, yeah yeah just the good questions. Uh, but yeah, I've been I've been peering over here and, and looking looking at uh, this. Oh, oh, Jared Frederick, one of my friends. He's he's asking a question here. Uh, is the demise of the annual Gettysburg reenactment a negative or positive in how we promote Civil War history? And he has a follow-up. Should we mourn the potential drop in visitors or celebrate the opportunity to have a clean slate? That's a wonderful question. Yeah, go ahead, John. Well, I think, uh, I personally think the annual Gettysburg reenactment, as a guy who reenacted it from the 130 whatever, yeah. I thought it was starting to decline a little bit when it was coming on year after year after year and nothing was changing. But Gettysburg itself is a draw. That name is just a draw. And people come in, it's like saying Normandy and World and the Second World War. But I see so much more now that the focus is shifting now towards uh, battlefield interpretation. And I'm seeing bigger crowds ratio-wise coming to hear one person do a presentation than going out and seeing 200 people have a mock battle, which is really interesting to me, especially when it's on the actual dates. You start to see people saying, well, this happened today, 150 some years ago. I think that it goes back to the interpretive model changing. I think that people have, you can only see so many battles and be like, well, I already saw that reenactment. Right, right. It's kind of like the circus. You know, I've, I've already seen an elephant right. and that's not a pun on seeing the elephant, but I've already seen the elephant. I don't need that it. pun. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, no. Like, it's a pun fest now, that pun. but, but I really think it is a changing in the interpretive model. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I lament the decline of the reenactment for the community here, the business community in particular. Yes. And like you said, you know, I did the Gettysburg reenactment in like 81, maybe 82, somewhere. I forgot that one. I mean, I was in high school when I did it. And it was a big deal because they hadn't had one for like a decade or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, at any rate, I, it's hard to sustain something like that, as you pointed out. You know, I don't think, you know, the slate is, is, is starting clean at all. I, I still think that the interest and the passion for the Civil War is still remarkably high. And uh, there's just different ways in which people are engaging it. And, uh, you know, I hope that the reenactment, at the very least, will be here, you know, every other year or something like that. Uh, but the people will keep coming to the site, to the battlefield itself. To me, that is the drawing card of this place. Uh, Jeff Williams, was the influence of material, oh, I just lost it, was the influence of material culture in the Civil War, was that influential on you when you wrote your book on the War for the Common Soldier? I know that's not our topic, but I want to get your, I want to plug that. Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was starting to be, I was becoming more and more aware of it. I Certainly, Brian Lusky and, and Jason Phillips and 
Megan, Kate Nelson and, and, and Jim Broomall, all of them made me more aware, especially Broomall. He was really onto this long before. I had a hard time initially getting beyond just the functionality of things. Mm -hmm. And I think that what scholars have pointed out and what now I think public historians can bring to general audiences, how things in a sense have agency, that they have a, a, a role, a powerful role in shaping people's behavior. And so it did become important into the book. Uh, I have to say though, that as, I, as is the case, you know, whenever you write a book, you benefit from the wisdom of a lot of other people. And I've been really fortunate to be surrounded by great folks, including, I, I have to say, you know, my mentor, Gary Gallagher, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Gallagher, an academic who has always spoken to general audiences, mm -hmm. who's given countless battlefield tours, and who said to me when I was a grad student, if you ever stop speaking to the public, I'll disown you. Mm -hmm. I think he was maybe kidding. I'm not sure. <laughs> I noticed. I got his point. Got his point. I, I noticed that in the upper echelon of what we consider the old line of academics, where you had you had Gary Gallagher, you had and you had Bud Robertson. They were they were very approachable. I thought it was those that were that were trying to make a name for themselves underneath who were like, I can't I can't be dealt with right now. I agree. But there's a cohort, and again, I, I don't want to conflate age groups here, but I can just go a quick list of people. Steve Nash, Bruce Stewart, uh, they're, uh, Bruce is at App State, Steve's at East Tennessee State, Carrie Janey at U UVA, mm -hmm. Keith Bohannon at West Georgia State, Barton Meyer at uh, Washington and Lee. And that's just quickly off the top of my head. Those are all folks who spent summers working in the National Park Service. Mm -hmm. and God knows how many other people I just left off. But the point being, again, these are people who enjoy being around people. And, and John, you made an interesting observation. You said the kind of work that you've done your entire life. Let's be honest, most academics have never picked up a shovel their entire life. They have a hard <laughs> time relating to average people, but not all academics. I mean, they're an easy target because they often make themselves an easy target. Sure. But like I'm telling you, people I've associated myself with, they care deeply about their students and they want history to reach broad audiences. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, it's easy to find in any profession, uh, some knucklehead that you can single out who said something that of course is just utterly moronic and makes academics appear that they are just aloof and disconnected from reality. They right. don't know what the real world is. Right. You can do that in any profession. But we of course live in this world hyped up by I think Twitter and we have mainstream media that all they want to do is get ratings. And they do it by going to the exceptional. And we, right, have an obligation to elevate this conversation. And I think, you know, that's something that you've been a very important part of. Thank you. I've, I've, I've always seen it as a balancing or a leveling of the playing field. Like I would have never imagined 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you and I'd be working together on something or me and Jim Broom all be working together on something or me and even Chris Gwynn would be working on something together. Uh, you know, because I was still that young guy who just got his BA and you're always being told, well, you got to get an MA to be taken seriously. And it's like, well, I think that's starting to like, it, it, really no, it, count it down. It is. It, it is. And at the same time, I would say about the publication field, mm -hmm. you know, I publish books with academic presses. I value the process. And that process is when you send a manuscript off, it goes to two readers. You don't know who they are. They'll write reports. Those reports will be very critical. They will suggest ways to improve the book. And often they'll say, this book isn't salvageable. We're not gonna print it. 
And it is that review process that is that academic process that I think, again, makes many of these books better books, makes these books books that will last longer. And when I mean last longer, that they will be part of a longer conversation. That's so true. And uh, there, there are... <laughs> Believe it or not, Pete, there are 101 comments that I've been, I've been skimming through over here. Uh, we, we have 103 people watching us live right now. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. This has been amazing. Uh, we've had some great comments that I'm, I'm looking through. Uh, well, John, I'm just going to tell you this. Yeah. I'm going to start doing uh, some live casting with our students. Cameron Sowers, who John's worked with very closely. Uh, he's gonna, We're going to do Facebook Live with him. And what we're going to do is take a document that's critical to his research about a Mississippi woman, a white woman, uh, and her coming to terms with the destruction of slavery. It's gonna be a document of maybe a page or two. We're gonna put that on our blog, the Gettysburg Compiler, so people can go and they can take a look at it. And then I'm gonna to talk to, to, uh, to Cameron live about his research and people are going to get to see, man, this is the actual document he's using. And then these people can join in and uh, they can ask questions. And I'm also thinking about holding just a class, a civil war class. Anyone can be part of it through Zoom. I'll have a document or two out there and I'll talk a little bit and we'll see how things go. Mm -hmm. uh, it can sort of be a free for all, a true uh, mosh pit. Did you get any questions, by the way, John, about whether I have any tattoos? I put it on the <laughs> On, on, on Facebook, on my Facebook, and people ask me if I had any tattoos. Really? I'd love to get a tattoo. Oh, really? I, I would love to get one. Really? I have a very low tolerance for pain, uh, and I hate needles. Hate needles. I, I hate needles too. But that they might. I'd like to. I've always told my wife maybe the names of my daughters. I thought oh, that yeah. might be nice. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah. I thought you were gonna go for like you know a hard tack and coffee or something like that. It would be no civil war. <laughs> I did enough Sabor. You have enough of that. I did enough Sabor. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's been it's been interesting to watch, and I'm really glad that uh, you're going to be doing more online with this stuff because you have number one, you have great students. Number two, you have a great program, and number three, Gettysburg is in the title of what you're doing. I mean, as far as like that's your location or whatever, and that's just a draw. It is. There. It is. And, and we are we are very fortunate that our institution, and when I mean the institution, I mean the people who manage and direct our institution, they value the history of Gettysburg. They understand its importance to convey to our students, and they recognize that that history should be, and it is, a source of inspiration to us, especially in a time like this. And so, yeah, I mean, you're a kid who came here from Indiana when I was seven years old, and to be able to live here and to be able to work here and to be part of a college that is incredibly dear to me. I, I attended Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis, affectionately called Uwe Pui. I'm very <laughs> proud of that place. It was a commuter school. We all worked when we attended college. It was nothing like this place at all. And I always wanted to have a college experience like the one that the kids here at Gettysburg have. And I can say, uh, I've gotten it. Yeah, I got a taste of it because I'm on the other side of the podium. I, I get that. But the connections that I've made with the kids here, uh, the mentoring that I'm able to do here, uh, and this, again, this really special environment with the National Park Service mm -hmm. right by my side, mm -hmm. and then having you here as well, it's been, uh, it's been really pretty remarkable.
Yeah, and I, I it, it's been awesome to watch the growth of it, and that's why I said, you know, I'm going to be moving to Ontario to go get my my PhD at Western, uh, but uh, I still want to come back every year for CWI. Yeah, just I love to I love to mingle. You know me, I love to mingle with people. So this time of being, you know, in isolation has been really tough because I like to go out and I like to talk to people and I like to uh, meet authors and and meet historians of all all shapes and sizes and and wherever they come from. And uh, going from a state school at Shippensburg University where I got my BA and my MA now to a school of over 30,000 students is going to be quite the change. Um, and a city of 380,000 is going to be quite the change. But, uh, you know, the, there's so much history up there, too, that I'm going to be diving into. And there's Civil War history in the, in the town where I'm going to be staying. There's a Civil War veteran buried in the cemetery. So I would love to, I think he's with a Michigan unit. So I would love to go do a, something on him. So there it's it's all around and, and like you say the beauty of Gaysburg College is you all have the uh you have the battlefield right there and that's the best class open air museum classroom you could ask for you know so John I'll finish with, with this question here yeah uh, and we, we have to go back to our title right we yeah. said right is this an adversarial relationship or are they allies what would be your final thoughts about that my final thought is probably 20 years ago it was adversarial uh but uh, speaking for myself, it's become a big alliance, especially in the Gettysburg area and other places, uh, because we have to be allied. I, I think there has to be a, a joining of forces to uh, to really get the ball rolling and catch up because the arts and humanities has taken such a huge hit. And I would love to see more people involved. And as a guy who worked on paving crews and in warehouses, I started the brand that I did because I wanted to connect with people like I worked with who have an interest in history, but aren't going to become historians or don't have a desire. They would rather do something else. So I think that to do that, I have to join forces with folks of all different strata of history, whether they're interpreters, reenactors, academics, uh, National Park Service, museums, to get that out. And I think that's why uh, the voice that I've kind of created through this has been so loud. Well, like you, John, I'm also very uh, hopeful, very optimistic. Uh, again, the threat of the budget cuts to the humanities across the board could very well endanger a lot of public history programs at colleges across the country. It's those public history programs that have done so much to bring folks together. You know, I think that uh, the challenge uh, that is ahead is that uh, the publishing field will continue, I hope, to do the kinds of books that are books that are challenging and meaningful, but that still tell good stories, because of course, that's what draws folks into this. And so I still think there's a lot that rests on the publishing field. I'd like to believe that's the case. And I think that there's a, a financial imperative there uh, that is um, gonna be pretty challenging for folks. Um, but I think that that could be, again, just one more area where people from these different backgrounds where they can find common ground. Mm. Well, John, I hope we'll do this again, especially with some of my students. I'd love for them to be able to share their research to your audience and, uh, and to the Gettysburg and CWI crowd as well. Yes, we definitely have to do this again. It'd be great to have uh, a bunch of us on here. It looks like uh, the Hollywood Squares or something when we're all on here together. Yeah, and it'd yes. be kind of cool, you know, if people can pick a block and go with that one for a question. 
And when all this is over with in terms of the pandemic, and it will be over with, uh, we absolutely have to go to Gary Owen because I'm tired of drinking water. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, we'll have to have to. Yeah, yeah well, right absolutely. So uh, thanks for your time, Pete. Really appreciate Thank you. you doing this, man. It's been it's been great. Thank you all for tuning in. We uh, and your questions and your comments, and I'm gonna go back through and check them all out and and uh, answer some that I didn't get to or. or Pete might come on and answer a couple. Who knows? Give a thumbs up on some things. But again, thanks, guys, for tuning in. Pete, thank you so much, my friend. Thanks. Take care, man.